Good morning. Before we begin, um, I wanted to just highlight in the bulletin that um, there is an announcement for next Sunday. We'll have our church business meeting. Um, that'll be for members only. We'll have our AM service. We'll have a break as we normally do, and then then come back for the business meeting. And um, uh, if you've been with us for a long time and your intention is to join with us, you can talk to Steve or myself. And if you would, if that meeting is of interest to you. And then, of course, next week we have our evening service. So we had it scheduled for today. We thought it'd be too much to try to squeeze in. So we will continue our exposition in the book of Hebrews. We started at a valiant pace, and it seems like the end of chapter 2 has slowed us down quite a bit because of its denseness. And so today's text will be chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. When Christ became a man, he showed his willingness to be tempted and tried and hated by men. And during his time on earth, he encountered these things, the very things that we encounter. And his incarnation, him becoming a man, revealed the extent to which he was willing to go to be identified with us, not only to purchase our salvation, but also to sympathize with us and to bring needed help. On a smaller scale, people try to empathize with the sufferings of others. I read this week of a a man a long time ago, John Griffith. He was a white man. He darkened his skin to make it look black and went about so he could see what it was like to be a black man in a predominantly white uh, city where he was at. And he later wrote a book about that. Um, also read a story of uh, uh, this 31-year-old woman. She's an industrial designer, single woman. And one day a week, she would dress up as an elderly woman to see what it's like to be elderly in our culture. And she was shocked to learn. It was heartbreaking. She was robbed. She was insulted multiple times. She's frightened by a world that does not care much for the elderly Well, as nice as those examples are, they're nothing compared to what Christ has done in coming and leaving the glory of the triune God and taking on human flesh to live among sinners, to come to be identified with us. No one else has left such a high position as he has to empathize with us. He gave up heaven's glory to come to experience what it's like to be a man and to purchase our salvation on the cross. Horatius Bonar, the Scottish pastor, said this, I hear the words of love, I gaze upon the blood, I see the mighty sacrifice, and I have peace with God. Well, let's go ahead and read our text. I'm going to pull back to verse 14, and we'll read verses 14 to 18. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, He himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. In our text for today, therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and a faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he was suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Let's pray. 
Father, we ask that you would hear our cry this day as we gather together as your people. We are a needy people. We are a weak people. Lord, we pray that you would assist us in quickening our minds, quickening our hearts to receive your word, the word implanted, which is able to save our souls. Pour out your spirit upon us, Lord, as we would look at these glorious truths, how we thank you for your dear son, how we thank you for our sweet Savior, how we thank you for his intercession on our behalf, even now. And so, Lord, we ask your special blessing upon this time for your glory alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, verses 10 to 18 has been very packed. I don't know how many messages. Maybe this is the fourth that we've taken up on that. And we saw something incredible early on back there, that Jesus is our elder brother, right? And also that he's the pioneer, the originator of our salvation, And then in verse 14, what I just read is that we see the purpose of the incarnation. He had to take on flesh and blood, he himself likewise, that he might render powerless the work of the devil, and that he might liberate us and free us completely. Last week, we took the whole sermon on verse 16 alone because of its profoundness, that the very thing that you have fallen angels and you have fallen man, and yet God discriminates between who will be saved, and there is no hope for fallen angels, no hope whatsoever. And it's a stark, uh, it, it magnifies really the grace of God, because that's really what all mankind deserved. None deserved to be saved, but it's his grace that he chooses to save some The fallen angels have absolutely nothing to look forward to except for the final wrath of God. And even Jude tells us that that they are kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. No hope whatsoever. And yet the door of mercy is open for sinners today to come to him. Just as Israel was the elect nation of all the nations, so too he has his chosen people among all the people, and so as the text says, but he gives help, literally seizures, deliverance to the descendant of Abraham, okay? Now, I mentioned don't run out and get the DNA test to see if you have just a little bit of Jewish blood in you, but that is speaking, of course, in a spiritual sense. Those who are of the faith of Abraham, they receive the help that comes from him alone. So today, as we come to our text, the appropriateness of the sufferings of Christ in the very cosmic plan of God, the covenant of redemption that was planned before anything was created, that Jesus would come and fulfill this task, that he would become our faithful high priest. He had to be made like his brethren. Again and again, we see this terminology, the my brethren, the children in verse 13, the children in verse 14, leading many sons to glory, this familial language of which he has come to identify himself with us. He had to take on our flesh. He had to enter into our misery. Just as we illustrated last week, that firefighter that's rescuing that girl in the second story bedroom and the house is engulfed in flames. He has to get close to the heat. He has to enter the flames to bring about rescue. Christ had to take on our flesh, live among sinners, to be a suitable sacrifice on the cross for us. Now, what purpose? He had to be made like his brethren. There's really three things in our text today that we're going to see. That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest 
that he might make propitiation, or in other words, make atonement for us, and that he might come to render aid to those who need that aid at just the right time. So those will be our three points, and we're looking at the first is this, verse 17a, Jesus is our merciful and faithful high priest. Now, what was the role of a priest? Okay, we've read a little bit from Leviticus, and some of you are reading through your Bible programs. You're probably like in, a, if you're reading a typical one, you're probably in Exodus right now. There's a lot about the priesthood there. Uh, but it, this whole idea of what the role of a priest has really been developed more and more over the course of redemptive history. In the Old Testament, priests represented God before man. That is why they were dressed in glory and honor. Exodus 28, verse 2, You shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. And so representing God before the people. But just as important, the priests represented the people before God. And you see that represented in even the, the clothing that we wore, the, the ephod and the gold and, and all of that. And then, and then those stones that had the tribes of Israel on the breast. And so that priest was identifying the tribes of Israel before God. Exodus 28, verse 9, you shall make two onyx stones and engrave the names of the sons of Israel, six, name, six of their names on one stone and six of the remaining on the other according to their birth. Christ became a man that he would bear our names, as it were, in his very soul. And he would be clothed, not with an ephod, with gold and all of that, but with the very perfect righteousness that he is full of. Leviticus 16, we looked at that, just a snippet of that. And as you read through the Pentateuch, by the way, Leviticus 16 is really the central chapter in so many ways, and I don't have time to go into a lot of that. But it, it really communicates how sinful humanity can once again become right with God. Leviticus 16, verse 20, I want to reread that for us just now. <clears throat> when he finishes atoning for the holy place in the tent of meeting in the altar, he shall offer the live goat. Then Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it the iniquities of the sons of Israel, all their transgressions in regard to their sins. And he shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who stands in readiness. The goat shall bear on itself all the iniquities to a solitary land, and he shall release the goat into the wilderness." So we see there that there's, you had the one that was slaughtered and that blood was taken into the Holy of Holies, that once a year ceremony, the day of atonement, that blood was sprinkled upon the mercy seat. And then the live goat, of course, is a picture of how our sins are taken away by Christ. Aaron confesses the sins of the people and sends it into the wilderness. Isn't that a picture of Psalm 103 that our sins are as far as the east is from the west? Uh, Micah 7, they plunged into the depths of the sea. They are removed from us. The two goats represented two truths, sacrifice and substitution. And both were fulfilled in Christ when he died on our behalf. Christ is our great high priest. He's merciful and faithful. He's, he's the ultimate sacrifice, but not for his sins, but for the sins of the people. Turn over to Hebrews 5 and verse 1. 
Obviously, this theme, this is the first time high priest is mentioned. It will be continue to be developed throughout this book. Let's read a couple of these verses. Verse 1, For every high priest taken from a man, among man is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God, exact same phrase that's in our text, in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins, so that he can then deal gently with the ignorant and misguided. And so you have a picture there, that sympathy. Go over to 8.3. 8.3. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. And of course, we'll get to chapter 4. Well, I'll save that because I have that for later. So Jesus had to take our complete nature upon himself. The author keeps driving this point home with the absolute necessity of the incarnation. It's like a carpenter with a massive hammer driving a large nail into a four by four, stroke by stroke by stroke. The writer is emphasizing this in this section before us. And then the text says he had to be made like his brethren. The old King James had behooved him. And the word has the idea of the, that to be under obligation to meet certain social or moral requirements. And so the idea is that Christ was obligated to be made like his brethren in all things. It's a word that occurs in Luke 17.10, familiar text, so you too. When you do all the things which have commanded to you, you say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done, which was expected of us. Jesus was under obligation to be fully equipped to become our high priest and to fulfill that task faithfully. Now, the term high priest, as I said, it's the first use here, but it's already been anticipated. Chapter 1 and verse 3, when he had made purification of sins, that's priestly language, as well as 2.9, when we saw um, there that, um, that he might taste death for everyone. But here it's made clear, and it'll be repeated so many times. But, but what is this high priest like? He's merciful and he's faithful. First of all, high priest refers to the one that would be over all the other priests, right? Just as you would expect. But by the time the, 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 um, Jesus was on the scene, the role of high priest became more of a political office more than anything. Um, as you study the Gospels, is uh, a presiding officer over the Sanhedrin, a chief governing body over Israel. And so he would be the principal representative that would represent the Jews in Israel before the Roman authorities. But we're told that he is merciful. Mercy conveys the idea of one who is actively compassionate, one that's tenderly involved, one that's benevolently merciful and involved in thought and action. And it's interesting as you study the Bible, it's nowhere is an adjective describing the priest as being necessarily merciful, right? They fulfilled their task. But, but here, Christ is described as merciful, and we look back and Yahweh is described as merciful again and again. Exodus 34 and verse 6, Moses says, let me see your glory. It says, the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. 
Psalm 145 and verse 8, the Lord is gracious and merciful. And so again and again, he is described as merciful. And brethren, in the gospel, we see Jesus perfectly reflecting the character of Yahweh and that he is compassionate and that he is merciful and that he is tenderhearted, but also faithful. And this can be taken really two ways, but uh, Jesus was merciful in regards to our human need and com- being compassionate towards us, but he's faithful in fulfilling his task, of which we'll see a propitiation and all of that, that he might be the high priest. In other words, to fulfill all the divine requirements. Uh, Hughes points out that mercy defines, defines the motivation of this high priestly office, faithfulness in its execution. And so he can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, as we read in 5.2. He's faithful to fulfill his task. His, his, his mercy is made effective by his absolute, complete commitment to be faithful to accomplish all that the Father has sent him to do. Once he had set his face like flint, to use the old language, in the middle of Luke, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to the cross. He did not, as it were, as he says in another place, a man putting his hand to the plow and turning back is not worthy of the kingdom of God. Jesus never turned back. He, he was faithful to go and lay down his life for ruined sinners. Not to mention all the fierce temptation that would come upon him as a sinless man, the agonizing torment that he would experience. But none of that would deter him from his task. This high priest is faithful, and he's merciful to us. He would drink down all of the bitter cup of God's wrath until there was not a drop left. He would take it all upon himself. He was faithful He's a merciful and faithful high priest. Secondly, today, Jesus turned away God's just wrath against sin. We see that in the last part of the verse. And things pertaining to God or in service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Isn't that interesting? The sins of the people sounds so generic, but it's kind of an, an old covenant term, right? The people, the people. Uh, that he, would, he would lay down his life for that purpose. On the Day of Atonement, that high priest would enter the Holy of Holies and would, would, would act on behalf of the people. Now, I don't know how many of you used the word propitiation in this last week. Um, probably, maybe one or two of you in some theological conversations, but it's, it's not a very common word. It's a packed word. There's different nuances to the word. And, and this is the, one of the verb forms. There's only two places where the verb occurs. The lexical definition is to cause to be favorably inclined or disposed, to conciliate, to propitiate. Uh, Secondly, to expiate or to wipe out. And that's the sense in which it is used. Propitiation is the only way that reconciliation could ever come to us, being alienated from God. The only other place this verb occurs is a place you might not think um, or expect is Luke 18 and verse 13. The publican, the tax collector, uh, standing some distance away, was unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, but beating on his breath, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And so in that use, you have the cry for mercy. In our text today, the task of Jesus, our high priest, to actually expiate sins before God to bring about that mercy. 
John Murray in his Redemption Accomplished and Applied says this, propitiation places in the focus of attention the wrath of God and the divine provision for the removal of that wrath. Reconciliation places the focus of attention on our alienation from God and the divine method and restoring us to his favor. That's a good definition. Now, the noun occurs in a few places, as you know. Twice in 1 John, I'll read 4.10 for us. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. The justice of God made the atonement absolutely necessary. The justice of God had to be satisfied. It made it absolutely necessary. Go back with me, please, to Romans chapter 3. Brother Aaron read this just uh, moments ago for us, but I want to read 24 and 25 because we see the word used here as well. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith, this was to demonstrate his righteousness because of the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously, um, previously forgiven. Now, look, or previously committed, rather. So what this is, is this is actually showing us that the means of propitiation, is that, that it might be set forth as an example to demonstrate God's righteousness. I'll go back to Hebrews with me, chapter 9. Hebrews 9. And verse 3, now the writer is actually contrasting Old Covenant worship to New Covenant worship in this uh, passage of Scripture here. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle which is called the Holy of Holies, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was the golden jar containing the manna, Aaron's rod, which budded, and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak. That word for mercy seat is the same root word here. It's the place to propitiate. It's the place of propitiation. It's the mercy seat that received the blood. And so, too, the words that's repeated again and again in Leviticus 16 is also very much related. Last week, we sung that song, Jesus, Thank You, and in it is the Father's wrath is completely satisfied. And that's what Christ did. Wonder of wonders. Jesus is our high priest. As it were, was the one who enters the Holy of Holies. But Jesus Christ not only makes the offering... He is the offering. Now, some have misunderstood this concept of propitiation that the Father's just so angry and Jesus came and finally like just fixed the Father and turned his wrath away. No, God is still a God of wrath, just as he is a God of love, right? God does not change. He is immutable. It's not as though God is not a God of wrath anymore. It's, it's his constant attitude towards sin. That's why there is and there will be a day of judgment, and, and it's even called a day of wrath in some places. Revelation 6.16 talks about the wrath of the Lamb when this will be executed. 
God displayed, and also his love is constant as well. And God displayed his love, and he continues to display his love um, towards his people. Romans 8.3, For what the law could not do, weak as it were, through the flesh, God did, sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. It's very simply, it wasn't Pilate or the Jews that, that, that killed Christ. This is all in fulfillment of the plan of God. In his infinite sovereignty, in his perfect providence, this was, it pleased the Lord to crush him, it says. So again, how is God's justice satisfied? It's through propitiation. It's, it's appeasement necessitated by sin it, to pacify, to expiate our sins. And that's what Jesus has done for us. Who benefits? Who benefits? Last week we talked about it. It's the sons of Abraham. It's those who are of the faith of Abraham. Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. He was justified by faith. That's who benefits. The many sons being led to glory, the children, the brethren, all of these terms that have been speaking of, those of us who are the children of God, we benefit. And now the Father's wrath is turned away because the Son paid for that in His body. So we've seen first the merciful and faithful high priest. Secondly, turned away the wrath. And now, very beautifully, Jesus helps those who are tempted. Verse 18. Let's read it again. For since He Himself was tempted in that which He has suffered, He is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. We see a picture here, a precursor of the sympathy that it will say in chapter 4 and verse 15, that he sympathizes with us. He, 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 he brings aid to us. He is, he is with us. He is Emmanuel, God, with us. Now, in what sense was Jesus tempted? It says he was tempted in the, in the things in which he suffered. Well, look at chapter 2 and verse 9. He was made... For a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. That's certainly a part of it. Some people say, as they read this, well, the things in which he suffered, that's all Passion Week, right? No, I would submit to you that it's his entire, his entire life on earth, from the incarnation to the cross. And some falsely reason, well, well, Jesus was sinless. Come on, it wasn't hard for him to resist sin. He's sinless. He couldn't sin, right? Now, we need to develop this a little bit here because, and maybe you've thought about that. Or maybe, maybe you haven't thought about that. We need to understand that the intensity to resist sin and to never give in is much greater than us when there's eventually some breaking point to where we give in could illustrate it like this way back when the Union Pacific Railroad was going out west and laying down its tracks and building these large bridges over huge canyons. Um, they, were, they were building on a trestle bridge across a large canyon. Um, the one in charge wanted to test the bridge, and so the builder loaded the train with twice as many cars and weight as what a normal train would have. He had that train taken out and parked on top of that bridge. He left it there all day long. And finally, someone came up and said, a worker, are you trying to break the bridge? He says, no, I'm trying to prove that the bridge won't break. In the same way, the temptations that Jesus faced weren't designed to see if he would sin. 
but to prove that he couldn't sin. Jesus felt every temptation to a degree that we will never experience. Most of us never know the full degree of resisting temptation. We usually give in long before we reach that degree of intensity. But Jesus experienced the full intensity of every single temptation that came to him. And bless God, he was victorious. All the way back from the 40 days of Satan tempting him in the wilderness. We have those accounts in Matthew 4 and in Mark 1. He overcame those. He overcame every type of temptation that came to him. He truly is our elder brother that resembles us in every way. But he's an elder brother that we can look up to that has not given in to sin. Therefore, he's qualified. He's able. He's, he's powerfully able to come to bring aid to us in our time of need. How does he give aid? How does he give help? As the ESV has translated it. Well, Jesus is uniquely suited to help us in our struggle. This is actually the the, the temptations that he's experienced during his incarnation. and, And all of that really is proof of his full humanity that he suffered when he was tempted. Westcott's helpful. Read this quote. Sympathy with the sinner in his trial does not depend upon the experience of sin, but on the experiences of the strength of the temptation to sin, which only the sinless can know its full intensity. He who falls into sin yields long before the last strain. I think that's a good summary of what's being taught here. Jesus knew what it was like to experience all types of of human weaknesses, as it were, to to be exhausted and tired, to be hungry, having not eaten for some days. That's why after three days in the wilderness and the 5,000 that were following him, he felt he's moved with compassion, as we talked about, and then, of course, multiplies the loaves to fix him. We try to understand the way some terrible human suffering is. We Look, uh, we have missions reports when, uh, from, from the other side of the world. We, we hear of reports. You, you think of what it would be like for, for three young children to have lost mommy and daddy to AIDS and to grow up as orphans in Zambia. You, you think, what is it like for, for a 13-year-old girl that's been human trafficked for six years to finally be rescued and to, to recover from all of the trauma? What is it like in every myriad of human sufferings? And yet Jesus is the bridge between God and man. He is the one that can come and to truly sympathize. And he brings aid to those who are tempted. And we will be tempted. We're tempted oftentimes. You think of the boy that's moved and he goes to a new school and he's being bullied. He's being picked on. There's already been multiple meetings with the the parents and the vice principal, and and, and it just continues on and continues on. And and why is this happening? And mom can actually point him to Christ. Christ was cruelly treated. He was beaten. He had his beard ripped out and all of that. Go to him. He will sympathize with you. He will bring aid. Or that mom that's uh, home, her husband's on deployment, all three of the young kids under seven are, are sick and snotty, and, and she hasn't had a minute to just sit down and to rest, to, to cry out to Christ, to bring aid. Now, how does he bring aid? Well, first of all, what does this word mean, to bring aid? Um, the ESV has help. It's a different word than what we had in verse 16, which we developed quite a bit um, up there in verse 16. 
This is the idea of rendering assistance to someone who is in need or to furnish needed aid. The old King James of Sukor, which is the idea of assistance and support in times of hardship. And notice the text here. He is able. He is able. He is able to come to bring the help, the right help, the aid to those who are tempted. Dunamis, all-powerful, powerfully able. E.W. Pink writes of this phrase, it implies both the fitness and the willingness to do a thing. Christ is both competent and ready to undertake this for his people. Turn to 4 in verse 15. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. There it is again. He's without sin, but he's able to sympathize with us in these situations. Chapter 7, verse 25. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now, we are not told in our text, brethren, exactly what this help looks like, A, B, C, D. But it is, it's help that comes. And in chapter 4 and verse 16, we do get something of that. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that, here we are, purpose clause, that we might receive mercy and find grace to help, same word, in time of need or to aid in time of need. And so here is, is he's just touching on this high priestly office of Christ here. It will be further developed, as I said, for the next several chapters and especially in that text. So he, we receive mercy and we find grace to come in that time of need. And grammatically, that's just in the nick of time in that time of need. And what this, might this look like? Well, just the very sense and the promise that we know that he can sympathize, that he truly understands. It's like if there was a piano in the back and Calvin was up here and he, with his big hand and just kind of struck middle C, and it was very quiet, not with all this background noise, you could hear middle C back there, just very ever so faintly. Sympathonic renaissance, it's called. And so just hitting a certain key here will be echoed back there. And so too, when Christ sympathizes with us, when we're going through something and he can sympathize with us, it's almost as though he feels it. He's so intimately involved with his people. So knowing his sympathy, maybe it's uh, during these times, it's suddenly the promises of God flood your soul and encourage you and, 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 and um, strengthen your faith. Sometimes it's by strengthening us by His Spirit. So this could look many different ways. But the key is, is that we come to the throne of grace, (laughs) right? When we're going through something and we need help, that we have direct access, that we come to Him in any time. Like the hymn says, what a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear, What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Very simple hymn, but profound truths. And if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you know 
the times where something's happened and you're just you're trying to kind of fix things and and you're delayed before you take it before God and you see the folly of that. Well, in, in this in these couple of verses, it's possible. It's been suggested by a couple commentators, and I, I, I lean in favor of this that it's possible that the writer to the Hebrews had Psalm 79 and verse 9 in mind. And the, and the reason for that is in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, two of the key verbs in our text come from that text to propitiate and to bring that aid or help. I'll read it. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name, and deliver us and forgive our sins for your name's sake. Now we have to remember the original audience. We have to remember it's most likely a, a small house church somewhere in Rome experiencing persecution during the reign of Nero from the Romans, Jewish persecution for following Christ. And, and they needed this encouragement. They were tempted to pull back and to turn back from their confession of who Christ is. That's why the writer is painting this glorious picture beginning with Christ is superior to the angels. That's really the first two chapters the overarching theme here, but they're tempted to go back because of the fear of hardships and further sufferings. And we know that from various verses that occur as the, as the, the letter, the sermon continues on in chapter 10 and verse 32. He says, but remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations and partly by becoming sharers of those who were so treated. This was not the, your best life now, Joel Osteen, right? These are faithful believers that are experiencing persecution but are thriving under the gospel, are thriving under who Christ is. And so too, just as they are encouraged that this high priest is able to come in your time of need, to bring the aid at just the right time, that is true for us as well. Well, let's draw a couple concluding applications as we wrap up. Um, first of all, you need a priest. If you're going to approach God, you need a priest. You need this high priest. You need a mediator. There's only one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Listen to Matthew Henry. He says, observe there was a great breach and quarrel between God and man by reason of sin, but Christ, by becoming a man and dying and taking up the quarrel, has made reconciliation so far that God is ready to receive all into favor and friendship who come to him through Christ. Isn't that a glorious promise? And don't forget, brethren, the cross, the cross was that place where divine Justice was satisfied. Think of even in the Garden of Gethsemane, as we just go back to the Garden of Gethsemane, just hours before he would go to the cross, after the Last Supper, and, and, and Jesus knew what was coming. The depth of his agony and distress was unmatched. Mysterious, deep waters that the Son of God was going through. The prospect of drinking all of God's wrath was unbearable. It says in Mark 14.33, And he took with him Peter, James, and John, after leaving the, the rest of the twelve further out, takes the three in, and he began to become distressed 
and troubled. Distressed and troubled. Distressed is the idea to be moved to a relatively intense emotional estate, to causing great surprise and perplexity. One lexicon, put it like this, to be filled with horror. So he takes his inner three closest human companions, and he takes him and he says that a very distressed and troubled, troubled is the idea to be in intense anxiety. Mark goes on in verse 34, and he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. He went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray if it was possible that this hour might pass from him. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not as I will, what you will. There it is again. He's deeply grieved. Luke, of course, tells us in 2244, being in agony, he was praying very fervently and his sweat became, as it were, like drops of blood that fell to the ground. The idea of agony there is describes the climax of this mysteriously mysterious soul conflict that he was experiencing it's the idea of a a very severe athletic context in which eyes would be gouged out and and all of that the old wrestling matches it's the cross it's the place divine justice was satisfied. Jesus knew that bitter cup was awaiting him and he would have to drink, as it were, every single drop of it and experience that to where he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My dear brother, sister in Christ, no matter what you're going through, go to Gethsemane, see a concerned Savior, see one that endured, as it were, all of the very wrath of God on behalf of for your sin, paying for that, so that He can then bring you the help and aid that you need in your time of trouble. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever to minister to your needs. Jesus is available, encouraging us. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace in our hour of need. Maybe some of you are weary. What about those who see slow victory over certain sins? Those that are true Christians, that, and, and isn't it true, in our sanctification, sometimes there can be rapid growth. Other times it just seems like you're just kind of, you know, maybe in a 1% plane or something like that, you know, just a very slight grade. Other times maybe you, it's a backsliding, Right? We need to go to Christ to receive that grace and mercy, to be reminded of the promises that he will not leave you, he will not forsake you. He who began a good work in you will complete it unto the day of Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon uh, quoted this in a sermon I was reading this past week, and it didn't say who it was from, but I'll read it because I think it's good. Lord Jesus I long to be perfectly whole. Is that your cry as a true believer? I long to be perfectly whole. I want thee forever to live in my soul. Break down every idol. Cast out every foe. Now wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. If you're here today and you're outside of Christ, you need to see that you, if Jesus hasn't paid for your sins, you will pay for your own sins in that day. If you're not born again, you're at enmity with him. 
you're, you're an enemy with him. Jesus has taken away the Father's anger and wrath for the descendants of Abraham. And so today, the door of mercy lies open. Remember those angels we talked about last week? Absolutely no hope in chains awaiting judgment today for the fallen humanity that have yet to come to Christ. The door of mercy is wide open. Run to this sympathetic, this merciful, this faithful high priest that can save you, turning from your sin, repenting of your sin, and embracing Christ and seeing him as a suitable Savior, and he will change you. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for this time that we could be together this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, we ask, indeed, that your word would have your way in our lives. And Lord, that we would make use of your dear Son in the role of a high priest who intercedes on our behalf. How we thank you so much for that. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your day, the Lord's day. We ask your continued blessing upon it. In Jesus' name, amen.